Good evening. I'm Danny Martin, the pastor in residence here at Five Oaks Church. It's good to see quite a lot of you actually out here on a Saturday evening and good to be seen by anybody watching online. We're glad to have you. In the year 325 AD, 318 bishops got together in the city of Nicaea. Some of you might have heard of it as Nicaea, in what is today northwestern Turkey. They had been called together by the Roman Emperor Constantine to settle several theological debates. Chief among them, the real nail-biter, is Jesus the exact same essence as God, or is Jesus a very similar yet slightly different essence as God? The council began in May. It concluded in August. They assumed they'd go to Turkey, catch some sun, maybe get some Turkish delight. Instead, they were stuck with 300 pastors all summer in what had to be the worst summer vacation ever, talking about this. <laughs> but it wasn't all dry theology. Santa Claus was there. That's right, the historical Saint Nick. His name was Nicholas of Myra, was, according to some sources, present and part of the conversation at Nicaea. History even records that Santa got so worked up at one point in all the debate that he slapped a heretic in the face. <laughs> you thought the naughty list was a joke. <laughs> and out of the Council of Nicaea came what we today call the Old Nicene Creed. It's one of the oldest formal statements of faith of the Christian church. It tells us about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, the Trinity. And here's what it says. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father, light of light, very God of very God, begotten not made, being of one substance with the Father. The language here about substance is the bishop addressing these questions. Is Jesus similar or is he the same as God? They concluded he is the same essence as God the Father. That's why they say he's of one substance with him. So they're recognizing the cumulative evidence of what the Bible teaches, which is that Jesus is God, but Jesus is not God the Father, nor is he the Holy Spirit. The creed goes on. By whom whom is Jesus, all things were made, who for us men, humans, all of us, and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate and was made man. He suffered, and the third day he rose again, ascended into heaven. From there he shall come to judge both the quick and the dead. That's a lot of information about God the Father and God the Son. Specific vocabulary, hotly debated, to clarify and identify precise biblical truths. After that, concerning the Holy Spirit, the creed says, and we believe in the Holy Spirit. <laughs> I didn't lose a page in the manuscript, that's it. <laughs> that's all they had after a summer's worth of work on this. That's all they could come up with. He exists. 
as we can see, understanding the Holy Spirit is not a new challenge. The Holy Spirit is everywhere in the Bible, and especially in the New Testament, the part that's concerned with the life of Jesus and the growth of the early Christian church. At the same time, there's no single place in the Bible where Jesus or any of the apostles explain top to bottom who the Holy Spirit is, what he does, and how exactly he relates to the Father and the Son. And because the Holy Spirit's works and influence are at times just as mysterious as his, as his descriptions in Scripture, some would prefer to avoid too much talk of him altogether. Pastor and author Francis Chan was not wrong when he called the Holy Spirit the forgotten God. I suspect as well that many Christians, perhaps even many of you, are not so much convinced from your reading of Scripture that the Holy Spirit is God, the third person of the Trinity, as much as it is that you have been assured that this is the case by pastors and Bible nerds, and if you deviate from what we tell you about this, Santa Claus is coming to town. <laughs> Including today, we'll devote the next few weeks to learning who the Holy Spirit is, what he does, why he came, and how we can learn to acknowledge his work and presence in our daily lives as we seek to give him his proper due. My hope in this series is that God, the Holy Spirit, for every single one of us, will not be the forgotten God, but the remembered God. We mentioned a moment ago that there's no Holy Spirit chapter of the Bible that answers all the questions we might have about him, like a textbook or Wikipedia might. The reason for this is that the Bible was not written within the past 100 years. It was not written within the past 1,000 years. With the guidance and inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Bible started being written 4,000 years ago. And God didn't close the book until 2,000 years ago, which is a roundabout way of saying that the Bible is not written with our modern sensibilities in mind. It uses frames of reference that are often unfamiliar to us, and it rarely answers questions the way we would prefer that they be answered. For these reasons, much theology is context-driven, comparatively little of the Bible is like the middle chapters of Romans that are explained so easily by the Apostle Paul. If we want to know how the scriptures portray the Spirit, we have to look in a lot of different places and assemble a cumulative case, which also means there are a lot of different places we could turn, but the scope of what we can say will necessarily be limited. I imagine that this disappoints those of you serious Bible students who got excited when you heard about Santa smacking heretics, whereas the rest of you are like, oh, thank goodness. <laughs> so the first thing that we've chosen to dive into about God the Holy Spirit is this. The Holy Spirit is an advocate who is with us forever. The first of several texts we'll be reading from today is John chapter 14, starting in verse 16. John 14, starting in verse 16. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath the seat in front of you. You're looking for page 1081, 1081. While you're opening there, I'll remind you that one of our core values at Five Oaks Church is that though the Bible is sometimes mysterious to us, it does not need to be a mystery. 
God desires to reveal to us the truth of his word. And if you will make the discipline of Bible reading a part of your regular rhythms, he will be faithful to you. The Holy Spirit will change you for your good and show you your place in his story. John chapter 14, starting in verse 16, Jesus is speaking to his disciples shortly before he is arrested. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. If you're able and willing, please read aloud with me the following words on the screen as we pray together. Almighty God, by your Holy Spirit, illumine the sacred page, we pray, that our minds may be open to receive your word, our hearts taught to love it, and our will strengthened to obey it through Jesus Christ our Lord. Holy Spirit, train us to sense your daily leading. Train us to see the good fruit you've grown in our lives, to know that the goodness, patience, kindness, purity that we practice is because of what you have done. Continue pointing the world to Jesus' death on the cross, that all who believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life with God and one another. Amen. Throughout Jesus' three-year ministry, he turned people's expectations on their heads. In his teaching, Jesus would say things like, you've heard, this is the way things are, but I say it's actually this way. Other times, he would teach in little stories, we call them parables, so that his meaning wasn't blatantly obvious to those who, in their hearts, were unwilling to give him their undivided attention. Those who tried to stump him with trick, trick questions ended up looking the fool. When a mob of people wanted to throw him off a cliff, the Gospel of Luke tells us Jesus just walked through the crowd and went on his way. He was like, nope, not today, Satan. And he just got out of there, just walked right out. Because Jesus frequently turns our expectations on their heads. And in John 13 through 17, Jesus is giving his farewell address to his closest disciples they too had expectations about Jesus, that he would disperse the occupying Roman army, reinstate Israel as an independent nation, and sit on the throne of Israel as a flesh and blood king with an everlasting kingdom. But now, after the Last Supper, he says he is leaving them. He will only be with them a little while longer. And John 13 says, where I am going, you cannot come. Jesus, you said you'd be with us. Now you're leaving. You won't say where you're going, and we don't know the way. The world hates you, Jesus, and it's going to hate us because we follow you. How are we supposed to survive this hatred? Jesus, you say there's a mission. How are we supposed to accomplish it if you're not here to lead us? We can't do the things you can do, Jesus. We can't teach the way you teach Jesus, how is what you've built going to endure without you? These are the questions the disciples are asking. 
His answer starts in the text we read. John 14, I will ask the Father, he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him. It neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. Jesus says the Father will provide another advocate to help the disciples and be with them forever from then on for the rest of their lives. Advocate is a favorite word of the Apostle John, the author of the gospel, this gospel. Four times he uses it to refer to the Holy Spirit. Once he uses it in reference to Jesus himself. That's why Jesus says here, another advocate The word another here means another of the same type, an additional advocate like the first, not a substitute advocate less than the first. Advocate is a good translation of the original Greek. Some translations you have might read helper or counselor. Both are good, but might risk conveying that the spirit is just there when the going gets tough, because if you have a helper, typically it's because something needs helping. And if you go see a counselor, it's once or twice a month until you handle your drama. Advocate gets across that he has your back all the time. The word means something quite close to defense attorney. Both Jesus and the Holy Spirit are our advocates, our defense attorneys on retainer forever. But sometimes, It doesn't feel like your attorney is with you, does it? You're like, I got trials left and right. I've got unpaid parking tickets. I need to take out a restraining order. Where is my lawyer? He doesn't feel like he's on retainer with me. This week, I needed to know that he is my advocate, despite how I feel. A lot of times uh, when I come up here, particularly on Sundays, it's always a privilege to speak to you and I greet our online, online viewers and I will often greet my mom. I'm always glad when she watches. Most of you don't know, she's been a cocaine addict for 30 years, which has been and continues to be a source of stress and sadness and brokenheartedness for me and for our family. Monday morning, I had a meeting, was ready to really drill down on this message. Instead, I got the call that she was hospitalized, worse off than ever, with a seizure, swollen brain, unresponsive cocaine in her system. It does not matter how many times you get that phone call, it is always exhausting every single time. God was merciful to me when my mom left us when we were kids. He put my dad's sister in our lives. She was filled with the Holy Spirit, and everybody knew it. She didn't just talk about Jesus, she lived Jesus. And when God saved me, and I became a follower of Jesus, it was because no matter when my aunt visited, she always went to church. And I always wanted to go with her, because the Holy Spirit's work in her life was magnetic. I'm tired this week. I sprained my wrist yesterday. I'm glad for passages like this in Romans 8. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know what we ought to pray for. 
The Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. Many times over the years, I did not have words, only tears. In my weakness, the Holy Spirit interceded. Theology can at times seem abstract and disembodied. Think about the creed we read earlier. I imagine some of you heard it and thought, well, that sounded smart, but I understood about half of it. Theology is the pursuit of understanding who God is. It's not about being smart or well-read. It's about lived reality. How could I stand up here in good conscience and tell you the Holy Spirit is your advocate and not share how he has been mine? That he has grown the fruit of the Spirit in my life despite my difficult circumstances and despite, in many cases, myself. But that's what God does. He creates out of nothing. He heals the brokenhearted. He revives dead things. The Father and the Son together send the Holy Spirit to activate in us what Jesus did for us. Last weekend, we had over 800 people in this building between the three services. Without a doubt, some of you are walking in here on any given weekend with something just as heavy going on in your own life as has been going on in mine. I have learned, and I hope you learn as well, that God is not against you. Sometimes it seems like God is against you when things pile on. He's not. He desires the death of no one, Ezekiel tells us. Jesus came because God so loved the world. He is patient because he wants no one to perish. He is not against you. He is for you. He is for you. It doesn't matter how I felt this week. It doesn't matter how you felt this week. It doesn't matter how those of you who are fine this week will feel next week when the stuff hits the fan. And it always does, doesn't it? Jesus said the Holy Spirit would be sent to us as our constant advocate, full stop. If he doesn't feel near to us, if we don't sense his presence and leading, if we don't see his fruit growing in our lives, it's not because he moved. It is because we moved. In Ephesians 4, the Apostle Paul warns us not to grieve the Holy Spirit. In 1 Thessalonians 5, he warns us not to quench or extinguish, some translations will say, the Holy Spirit. Clearly then, it is possible to tell your advocate his services are not required because you have your stuff together. But this same Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 12, starting in verse 9, but he, that is the Lord, said to me, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I am thankful that I have spent much of my life in weakness because it makes God's goodness and the Spirit's power so obvious. 
So I'm thankful for my wife and how she prayed for me not to lean on my own strength in composing this message this week when I didn't feel ready or prepared given everything else going on. And I'm thankful for the sense I had from the Holy Spirit in prayer that my purpose here was to tell you the truth, not to lean away from what's been going on in my life, but to lean in. And I trust that he wanted that because some of you need to hear it. However, it has also completely imbalanced my intended structure for this message. <laughs> so buckle up because we're flying the rest of the way. <laughs> Jesus' last recorded words in Matthew's gospel are, Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. He's not talking about his physical body. Jesus' physical body is this very moment in God's throne room interceding for us. Romans 8.34 tells us, Christ Jesus who died, more than that who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. When God the Son took on human flesh, he chose to take on some physical limitations. His physical body is not here. It is in heaven beside God the Father's throne. But God the Father and Jesus sent the Holy Spirit so that we will have him with us 24-7. In fact, Jesus says that this is better for us in John 16, verse 7. Very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Now we have God's presence with us all the time. He had said a moment earlier in John 15, 26, when the advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. There's something interesting going on here under the hood, as it were, in the original Greek language, the word he, he will testify about me. He is not the grammatically correct word to use here. The reason the technically incorrect word he is used is that John, the author of the gospel, is helping us understand that Jesus is making a point here about the Holy Spirit. He's not an it. The Holy Spirit is a distinct person. You can put uh, the word distinct. It shouldn't be in your sermon application guides. Well, wait a second. He's spirit. Doesn't that mean he's not a person like you or me? In both Hebrew and Greek, the word for spirit could also mean wind or breath or life force and a lot of other things as well. And the Holy Spirit is not any of those things. He is not in it. The Holy Spirit is not God's holy breathment. He's not Jesus' ghost. The Holy Spirit is not God in another form or Jesus in another form. The Holy Spirit is a person. This is a philosophical term. It means the Holy Spirit has a distinct consciousness, rationality, and will different from God the Father and Jesus. In fact, all three persons of the Godhead are themselves distinct persons. That's why when Jesus prayed before he was arrested, he said, not my will, Father, but yours be done. 
That's why Jesus says in our passage from above, John 14, I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. He asked the Father to send him. Jesus asks him to send the Holy Spirit. He doesn't say, Father, transform me into a ghost so I can be here invisibly. It's important to note as well, this is a little bit of an aside, that Jesus is not God the Father transformed into a human. Jesus is eternally God the Son and eternally distinct from the Father and the Holy Spirit. That's about as much as we'll say because it's a whole other sermon series. <laughs> because he is a person, he can teach. Because he is a person, he can give good gifts to us. Because he is a person, you can grieve him. You can live inconsistently with what God has done for you and break his heart. Why does it matter that we identify the Holy Spirit as a distinct person? It's crucial to relate to God as he has revealed himself to us in scripture. It's important to approach God in his terms, not our own. The other reason is this. It's not in your outline, but it's worth writing down. Because he is a person, we can interact with him. We do have a relationship with him. If you're a Christian, you should never be asking, do I have a relationship with the Holy Spirit? You do. Paul says in Ephesians 1, 13, when you believed, you were marked in him, Jesus, with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. The question to ask instead is, how am I relating to him? We'll talk more about it in a moment. Keep your seatbelts on. Our third point of discussion is this. The Holy Spirit is God. In the book, Emblems of the Infinite King, which I understand we went through a couple of years here, years ago here, author and theologian J. Ryan Lister writes, the Spirit deserves his rightful due, not because he seeks it, but because he is God himself. It's hard to say just one thing in isolation about the, Holy, about the Holy Spirit, and this gets back to what we said earlier. Theology is very often contextual. So instead of a top-to-bottom Holy Spirit chapter in the Bible, what we get are lots of examples of the Holy Spirit being called God or being attributed the rights and privileges of God or doing things that only God does. Here are just a few examples. There are many, many more. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul writes that if you're a Christian, you are God's temple or meeting place. A temple is a place where God and humans meet. And he says this to the Christians there, 1 Corinthians 3. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? Three chapters later, he says their bodies are the Holy Spirit's temple. In chapter 6, 19, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. Paul didn't forget what he wrote three chapters ago and ink was expensive, so he's just like, ah, I'll figure it out. 
It's not an either or issue. It's a both and. To be God's temple is to be the Holy Spirit's temple because God the Father is God and the Holy Spirit is also God. When a person lies to the Holy Spirit, in Acts chapter 5, Simon Peter says he lied to God. When the church exploded in growth in the early chapters of Acts in the city of Jerusalem, in the earliest days, a lot of the new Christians were from all over the world. But they stayed in Jerusalem after they became Christians. So for these new Christians who were far from home, they didn't have homes or jobs of their own. So Christians who were local from Israel, who owned property, would occasionally sell it and give the proceeds to the church to provide for the needs of the Christian community, which would have included a lot of these people who were from other places. And one couple apparently wanted the apostles to think that they sold some land and gave all the proceeds to the church in this great act of sacrifice and generosity when actually they kept some of the money for themselves. We read Acts chapter 5, starting in verse 3. Then Peter said, Ananias, that's the man's name, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. Lying to the Holy Spirit is lying to God because the Holy Spirit is God. Lastly, Jesus and the apostles repeatedly say or imply that the Holy Spirit is equal to God the Father and God the Son. 1 Peter chapter 1 reads, to those who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. Bible scholars would say this is a Trinitarian formula. It doesn't say directly the Holy Spirit is God, but it is putting him on the same footing as God the Father and Jesus and showing all three to have an integral role in a Christian's life. There are several of these formulas in the New Testament, though perhaps the clearest of them all comes from the mouth of Jesus to his disciples in Matthew 28. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. He says to baptize new believers in the name, singular, of the Father, Son, and Spirit. It's not three names. It's one name. That name is God. To some of you, this is all very interesting. Others of you are hoping for another surprise Santa Claus joke. If you're following Jesus, it's important to have a baseline for what we believe because what we believe influences what we do. This is why Paul prayed for the Christians in the city of Colossae. Colossians 1.9 For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God. Sometimes we meet folks from certain church backgrounds who have been taught that being saved and being spirit-filled are distinct experiences. 
And if it is possible to be indwelt by God, the Spirit, without experiencing his power and presence in, in your life, or they say that you can be indwelt without experiencing his power and presence. So if you meet somebody who says to you, are you just a Christian or are you Spirit-filled? The answer is yes. The Holy Spirit has been poured out on all of God's people. If you are a follower of Jesus, the Holy Spirit was poured out on you when you believed. You have been marked with a seal. But there is a question behind the are you spirit-filled question, and we shouldn't be so quick to brush it aside. If we're Christians, we are spirit-filled, but do we live as though we believe this is true? Filled is an important word here in the Greek the best English translation of filled here is filled. And sometimes we're acting like we're spirit damp. And sometimes even damp seems too strong a word. We're acting like we're spirit humid. Spirit quarter tank. My concern for myself and for other Christians I know is that we often do not view God the Holy Spirit as a person with whom we have a relationship. We don't necessarily say that he's an impersonal force or idea, but very often we can effectively treat him this way. Jesus did not send the Holy Spirit so that he could hover around the outskirts of our lives. And the fact that we are warned against quenching and extinguishing him should alert us that both of those things are within the realm of possibility. My hope for all of us is the hope of Paul in Ephesians 1. I keep asking that God, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. Invite the Holy Spirit into your every day. Abide in him. Make the choice to view the good things in your life as his gifts. Choose to remember that these fruits of patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control have been grown in your life through his work in your life. At the start of the message, I joked that the bishops at Nicaea spent all summer coming up with the Nicene Creed. They didn't have much to say about the Spirit. Within 60 years, six zero years, another council was called. Santa Claus was not there this time in Constantinople to expand the Nicene Creed and particularly the section about the Holy Spirit. It's called the Creed of Constantinople. The Holy Spirit section reads, and I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshiped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. Who is the Holy Spirit? He is our advocate and our God. He deeply desires to be in relationship with us. In your own life, let him not be the forgotten God, but the remembered God. As we begin our time of response, Let's take the bread and cup and remember what Jesus did for us. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. 
And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Thank you, Jesus. Let's eat it together. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Thank you, Jesus. Let's drink it together. The scripture tells us that whenever we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray together. Father, fill us with the knowledge of your will through all the wisdom the Spirit gives so that we may live lives worthy of you and please you in every way. May we bear fruit in every good work and grow in the knowledge of you. Amen.